welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Jason Schumann, a partner at Primary Venture Partners, the largest seed fund exclusively focused on New York City-based companies. So Jason leads new customer and marketplace investments for Primary, including consumer healthcare. Primary's previous healthcare investments include K-Health, Alma, Dandy, and most recently, Perry Health. Jason was named Forbes 30 under 30 in VC and was listed by the VC Journal as one of the venture capital's 40 rising stars. Outside of work, Jason serves on the board of the Jeffrey Model Foundation that supports research for primary immunodeficiencies as he was diagnosed with the disease at six months of age. And he's a big supporter of mental health awareness. So Jason, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, man. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. What an eclectic background you've got. Look forward to getting into it. Um, where about are you speaking to us from today? I can probably take a guess based on where your funds focused. <laughs> New York City, man, and we, we have uh, we have slightly better air conditioning than you guys over in the UK. <sighs> I'm so jealous. It is an absolute scorcher as I sit here today, and like I was saying before, I've got the fan off, the windows closed because I'm recording, and it is an absolute sauna in here. But I'm very, I'm very jealous. Uh, how's the summer going for you out there? So far, so good. You know, it's been uh, it's been a crazy one, to be honest. I mean, aside from COVID, like the pace at which deals are getting done here in the United States yeah. is, is pretty wild. Uh, so it's been nonstop. And I'm finally going to take a vacation here in a couple of weeks. Nice. Going anywhere nice? Uh, I'm actually going over to your side of the world. So are I'm you? Excited. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right, man. So the way we start these episodes, as you know, because you listen to a few, is we get you to tell your story. So by all means, sir, yeah, tell us. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I think my story starts in, in 1991. You know, I, I was born and raised outside of Boston. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned it in the intro, but at six months old, I was diagnosed with something called primary immune deficiency. So primary immune deficiency, the easy way to think about it is that, you know, my production of white blood cells isn't as high as the average person's and my white blood cells aren't that smart. So they don't really have good memory. So, you know, when I get viruses or whatnot, I may be able to get them multiple times. So for instance, I got chicken pox three times as a kid, it's, you know, one of those types of conditions. So, um, you know, growing up with primary immune deficiency was defining in many ways. You know, I think when people have, you know, childhood adversity like that, whether it's the missing school trips or getting sick a lot or having to get infusions every three weeks is the type of thing that helps you kind of grow up pretty quickly. And, you know, my mom uh, is and was a therapist and my father an entrepreneur. And so at a young age, I started to fall in love with startups, you know, and in middle school, I was literally writing business plans and you know, getting to meet with founders. I think back in the day, I, I had written maybe my best business plan of all time, which was uh, mobile payments on flip phones. Clearly, Jack Dorsey did that one uh, better than I did and, and, and the folks at Apple. But, you know, 13-year-old thir Jason uh, had had some ideas up his sleeve. Uh, but at the same time, I was working, you know, a lot with the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, um, you know, and I was going around and doing some speaking engagements for them at some colleges and universities and medical school openings and trying to help them raise really raise money. 
So in high school, I, I got my first, you know, kind of sinking my teeth into the startup world, uh, working at an identity theft protection startup um, that was run actually, you know, in full transparency by my aunt and uncle. Uh, and I worked under a VC there at the time. And that's when I just really fell in love with the nitty gritty of these things. I mean, you know, when you're 17, learning about A-B testing and customer acquisition strategies, you just start to learn about businesses in a different way. And uh, the next really 10 years after that, we're just kind of nonstop up until now. So, you know, I had started my first company in undergrad. It was a direct to consumer footwear company in 2011. Uh, it was good timing. It was a mediocre market, but pretty poor execution. You know, uh, I think uh, if I could have ended up like Warby Parker and Harry's and Glossier, that would have been wonderful. Um, but I wouldn't be where I am today. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, I ran that for a year in school. I ran that for a year out and I eventually wound that business down. And, you know, at 23, I, I really had a 23 year old life crisis. I mean, you know, a lot of people when, when they're young founders, they start to get really put on a pedestal in certain ways. And you think, you know, exactly yeah. what it is that you want, but when you fail at 23, your confidence gets shot. And, you know, for me, it was figuring out what was my next move. And venture seemed really interesting to me for four reasons. One, I could learn about different industries quickly, healthcare being one of them. Mm -hmm. Two, I could raise money easier. And three, you know, being that I could meet a better team, you know, moving forward. But the, the biggest thing for me was really the fourth one. And it has to do with like my why in life, which is the idea of giving other people, you know, the tools and the confidence, the skill set to go out and live a more successful, fulfilling life. So, you know, I ended up uh, literally driving for Uber at night and sourcing deals during the day. I got my first nice. big adventure because of that. Uh, I got pretty lucky, backed a company called Latch um, back then, which recently went public. It's an enterprise smart lock company. Uh, you know, after two years at my first firm called Corrigan, I jumped over to launch the family office for an entrepreneur named Mark Gerson, helped him do a lot of investing, helped him operate one company as well. And then after, you know, a couple of years of that, I knew I wanted to get back into the venture world and in a very specific way. And that way was, you know, going in and, and leading investments at a high conviction shop where, you know, you don't do 10, 20, 30 deals a year, like some seed investors, but you do something like three to four. Yeah. So uh, I made the jump over to primary, got really lucky because Ben and Brad had invested in Latch with me. And uh <laughs> been an incredible three years since, including, you know, what you had brought up, which was raising the largest seed fund exclusively focused on New York. It's a $150 million vehicle most recently. And, you know, really grateful for the founders that have let us partner with them over the years, including in the healthcare space. What a journey, man. Honestly, it seems like you did so much so young, like AB testing at 17, failed at companies by 23, plural, you know, so much experience so early. And it's interesting then that you've had, you've had your, your sort of midlife crisis all the way down at 23, but that's forced you into, like you said, figuring out what your why in life was and supporting others clearly was the answer to that. And you could sort of tick so many boxes in VC. What was it like being so young and doing a lot of this company stuff? Because back in, you know, 2011, like, like you're talking about back there, entrepreneurship was less cool than it is today, certainly. I, I can't imagine there was loads of you listening to Gary Vaynerchuk and doing it, right? It was, probably wasn't like the, the culture back then. So what was that like? Yeah, you know, I, I joke that 
there's the pre-social network era. I don't, I don't know if you're yeah, yeah, yeah. and then there's the post-social network era. The pre-social network era, uh, you know, starting a company wasn't that cool. And, yeah. you know, we, a lot of us were, were, were nerds who just did it for like the love of the game and, yeah. you know, we're, we're obsessed with it. But that obsession meant that, you know, we had to really go out and hunt down the people that we wanted to learn from. And so access to those people was a little bit more limited back then. And when I say access to people, I really mean is like access to information. You know, I, I kind of wish that I was a founder all over again at this point in time for a variety of reasons, you know, one of which is that there's this incredible democratization of access to information. You know, the podcasts are out, that are out there, whether it's somebody like Harry Stebbings on the 20 Minute VC, or, you know, you can go listen to an Andreessen podcast that yeah. dives insanely deep on healthcare. Like you can really get access to whatever you want at your fingertips, like right away. So being a kid and, you know, getting these companies up and running, it took a lot of ignorance and it took <laughs> a lot of, you know, naivete and, and, uh, and a willingness to just kind of run through walls to figure out what you needed to figure out. And I'm not going to lie, like, you know, you, you scrape your knees, you get bloodied up and you got to get back up again and, and get on two feet. But it's those experiences that, you know, help you learn and help you really reflect on what's important to you and, and mm. ideally help you moving forward. And, I think as an investor, it, it certainly helped me in having more empathy for founders. Yeah. Interesting as well. You know, you've ended up in VC and we'll talk about that and we'll talk about primary in a second. I didn't hear that college was part of your story, yet you've ended up in VC. I imagine that's uh, an interesting fact for a lot of people in different ways. I, I actually, I did go to school. So I started my company while I was in school. I was at the University Fine. of Miami. Um, so you did and- all of this alongside college? I did. And, and alongside being in an American fraternity, which, you know, it. takes up quite a bit of time. <laughs> um, but uh, an energy. Exactly. And energy. Now, you know, for me, um, when I went to college, I, I didn't feel like you could learn how to start a company in a classroom. I, mm. I really felt like most of that was going to be done outside the classroom. Mm. And I wasn't an incredible student. I was a good student, but I wasn't an incredible student. So you know, I was deciding between do I want to go to school in the Northeast, at like a Northeastern or a Babson, um, but, you know, the University of Miami gave me some money and, and, you know, also the opportunity to be really a big fish in a small pond yeah. uh, and go have four years where, you know, not only could I learn, could I meet great people and have access to those people, um, but, you know, good weather and, and, and a pretty good football team at the time certainly went <laughs> a long way. And, uh, and I had a lot of fun and, and, you know, I certainly learned discipline. Um, because when you're down there in Miami, if you can figure out how to really balance your time and create prioritization, then you're in, you're in a good place. And certainly helped me now at this point when I, when you have like, you know, a number of portfolio companies to look after while also sourcing new deals. Yeah. So tell me about that first gig in venture then and, and getting to that point. Um, because I imagine that'll be really interesting for people that might be listening that, thinking about VC as a career, thinking about where to start. Obviously, you've come to the table here with a lot of startup experience, a lot of hands-on operational, building from the ground up as a founder, figuring out, learning, failing, succeeding. You know, you've, you've come with a lot of, you know, knocks from the real world here. So you're coming to the table with a lot of practical information. Um, was that useful? Do you think that's the best way to do it? The only way to do it? Are there other ways to do it? Tell me about how you used that to get your first gig. You know, I, I never want to be prescriptive for people, you know, having interviewed now 
really dozens and dozens of people for, for our own firm and for our MBA associate programs and so on and so forth. I think there's no one path into venture. Mm. And, you know, people always ask me, are former operators the best investors? And I think, you know, when you look at the Midas list at one point, you know, seven of the top 10 had never operated a day in their life. <laughs> and, and I think, so I, I think it's really important to just note, like, it doesn't matter like what background you ultimately come from. But at the end of the day, there's less, you know, junior VCs, for instance, than professional baseball players out there. So your shot of getting in wow. is, is relatively low. And, and what it really requires is figuring out like what your superpower is. You know, what do you find easy that other people find difficult? You need to figure out your positioning. What do you want to know more than anybody else? What do you want to be known for? What do you like? What do you want to build a network in? What are you passionate about? You know, the beautiful part about venture capital is that if you're intellectually curious, you can go out and you can go learn about any industry in call it six months, a year, and spend a lot of time on that. And for me, you know, back then it was about hustling and networking and, and sourcing deals. I mean, it was a different game back in 2014, 2015 where seed investors were, you know, piling into deals together, writing 250K, 500K checks, borrowing conviction, excuse me, conviction from each other. Um, but that world has really changed now. So I think, you know, the, the only piece of advice that I would feel really good about giving people is, you know, figure out your story and figure out what you want to be known for and really become dominant in that world and become like the center of, mm -hmm. of connection. Because if you're the connective tissue around networking events and around deals and around, you know, sourcing the best recruits to help you build your company, like you're going to win. Not only are you going to win deals, but you're going to win whatever job it is that you want in the industry. And you say that the difference between then and now, then it was more about hustle. What's it more about now, if not hustle? Precision. <laughs> I think you need to bring um, a prepared mind to the table when it comes to, you know, different deals and, you know, not every deal is going to come to you. You need to go to the deal. Yeah. So, you know, back then I wasn't doing a lot of outbound sourcing. Now yeah. we have, you know, five investors at an early stage firm, two of which, you know, came over from uh, Stripes Group and Insight respectively, who are amazing at really just like having a nose for these deals and hunting them down. Um, but, deals move so fast now. Like our average time to term sheet in the last few months has been like eight to 10 days. Wow. So, you know, when you're meeting a company, if you have a thesis in a market, it makes your life so much easier because yeah. you already have a point of view on that. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, like that's one of the reasons why we're spending so much time in healthcare and, and really looking at it is it's like this groundswell of funding activity, this transformational shift that's going on. And because it's such a massive ecosystem, you know, my colleague, Sam tool and I can both spend over 50% of our time now focused on it. And it feels like we're like just starting to like nip at the bud there. Yeah. Understood. So tell me, let's start at the beginning then. Tell me about Primary Venture Partners. Tell me the history, the size of the fund you've got or funds you've got. Um, tell me about the thesis. Yeah, all about that stuff. Totally. So I, I can't really take much credit for it. You know, Ben and Brad, <laughs> uh, two co-founders, firm was started back in 2015. And, and, you know, the two of them really had this idea that was, was rooted in two things. One was they felt really long on New York. 
you know, they felt like that New York was just in the earliest stages and that, you know, by being long on New York, that in the future, we would have this incredible, you know, firm that could win the best deals in the city that would probably be number two to San Francisco. The second thing was that if you're going to push founders to be focused, that we as VCs should also be focused. You know, early stage companies are really hard and founders really do deserve better than an investor that's going to invest in 30 companies a year. So what do we do? We're New York only. We're pre-seed and seed only. We only lead deals, meaning like we're writing term sheets with conviction. We're usually buying 15 to 20% of companies, but we also have a portfolio impact team. These are people that are like executives that used to run 100, $200 million revenue companies, not, not valuation, revenue companies. So like Cassie Young, who came over from CM Group or uh, Rebecca Price, who came over from Capsule and Enigma, you know, they're folks that are going in and helping our companies with recruiting. They're helping our companies with go-to-market strategy and finance. And, you know, as a result of, you know, having that, we've, we've really earned the opportunity to work with some of the best founders in New York City. So for instance, our first fund, it was 2016, uh, or sorry, 2015 vintage, um, 24 companies, and like 93% of them graduated to Series A. And to put that in perspective, the average in the industry is somewhere between 40 to 45%. So that's over 2x. Um, do you reserve for follow-on? Do you guys follow on into your we do. Series we, a, yeah. we do. And, you know, not only that, but we raised an opportunity fund to follow on for our companies for as long as humanly possible. I mean, we, nice. we raised another, you know, hundred million nearly in order to do that. So yeah, we, we, um, you know, our, our belief is that you're going to back founders in the earliest days, you're going to partner with them and really help them day to day. Um, and, you know, continue to support them all the way through the IPO. And there's a reason why, you know, when latch went public, um, you know, a couple, really a couple months ago at this point that, you know, both Brad and I were, were at the, uh, the New York stock exchange, watching that, <laughs> watching Luke ring in the bell. And I think that's because we try to really work closely with them, become a part of our family. Nice. And what, what's your average check size? Like how much are you putting in for that 15, 20% at pre-seed seed stage? Man, this has changed a lot of late. Um, our average check size right now is about two and a half million at seed. Yeah. Um, for the pre-seed, we won't buy as much, but that's usually somewhere in like the 500 to 1.5 range. But, sure. you know, the last check I wrote, I think was about $3 million. Mm, it's quite interesting. The numbers just keep going one direction. They, they're going up. Yeah, man, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 a big, it's a big market, a big world. There's a lot of money coming in. We're just not know? catching up here in the UK, I don't think. I just don't see, particularly in health tech, I just don't see, you know, a two million pounds seed round i just don't don't often see it it's really quite rare it seems that you guys are much more willing to back companies properly it, it feels that way to me anyway i don't know you know and I, i'd be curious i haven't really dove into the data in the uk but um you know a couple of reasons why that's really happening in the us at least mm. especially in healthcare one, um, you know, we're dealing with a market that's $4 trillion in the United States. Um, and I think when you've got a $4 trillion market where, you know, regulatory shifts, consumer, you know, behavior shifts are going on. Um, and, and this like, why now of the fact that like the EHR has, has this incredible penetration, I think people see an opportunity in time to back companies in a big way. Um, so when you have that, that's a big thing, but number two, the funding environment downstream 
is absolutely incredible right now. I mean, I think in the first half of this year, to give you an idea, there's $14.7 billion invested into uh, digital health startups. Okay, that's, that's more than all of 2020 um, combined. And, you know, you look at the market and now there's 39 SPACs out there that are looking to acquire specifically mm-hmm. digital health startups. And so with the combination of those, those factors, you know, it, it presents the opportunity for early stage investors to be more aggressive yeah. because they know that the next round investor, the Series A folks, you know, in the West Coast or New York or wherever they might be, they're willing to put in 20, 25 million dollars yeah. at a price that still makes it worthwhile based on our entry. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, man. I like what you said about the the value add that you guys are bringing as well. I think that's something, it's a rhetoric that's often uh, often heard in VC land. We add value to founders. We've got this, we've got that, we've got the other. I think it com- what it really comes down to is, is practically what's going to help. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of lip service when it comes to that stuff. But similarly, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff out there as well. I know there's there's funds in the UK that have product team or their marketing team or their talent team that, that these different types of services that can you know help start their startups in different ways. What you've described there in terms of people that have run these you know hundred two hundred million dollar revenue companies you know coming in and adding value. Do you see that move the needle? Do you see that that the practical benefit of that? I mean, are you are you in and part of those meetings ever? Do, are you are you seeing that effect basically? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think look, if, if you're going to take a pay cut, you know, in order to, to really invest in platform, you're going to measure the results. Um, so <laughs> you'd you hope know, so. You'd hope so <laughs> for sure. You know, we, we we we've seen incredible results, and and you know, from our team, um, you know, for instance, the the recruiting team over at Primary. One, not only are we like building a database of thousands of vetted, by the way, this is important, vetted people in the New York ecosystem that we back channel and get references on because we're not going to want to waste your time as a founder and send you somebody we heard about. We want to send you somebody who we heard about that is great. And so really what we measure that on is like one recruiting fees. So like we save our companies nearly $3 million in recruiting fees every single year. See, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And like time to placement too. Like, you know, average company it might take them 90 days especially at seed because the ceo has to do so many things and then they have to log on it to linkedin in the middle of the night and like dm people like yeah it's crazy so you know our time to placement is, is almost half of like the average company in the new york uh tech ecosystem and then you know on the business development side um we have three folks um specifically focused on market development which is like going out and selling into companies. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you could certainly talk to a lot of the portfolio companies, but the results speak for themselves in terms of, you know, getting folks in the door, uh, mm. really, really big name brands. Nice. So let's talk about healthcare then. So what are you guys doing in healthcare? Where's your expertise in healthcare? Where do you like, what do you invest in, in healthcare? Do you go for a particular business model? Do you go for a t- particular customer? Is there a particular clinical area? How do you guys think about investing in healthcare? Totally. Um, so, you know, we, we started paying attention to healthcare really in fund one, um, you know, in that fund, uh, we invested in a variety of companies, including uh, K health, which is, you know, now a unicorn. Uh, and that's really focused on like the digital diagnostics space. Uh, we have a company called Alma, which is in the mental health space. That's raised, you know, quite a few rounds from some really top tier investors as well. 
Uh, and that, and most of those appear on the outside to be like consumer facing businesses. And then, you know, on the back end, the stuff that you don't see, we, we've certainly put a lot of money to work into companies like Stellar Health and Tuflume as well. So we're investing all along, you know, the, the healthcare ecosystem spectrum. Uh, my colleague, Sam Tool, who came over to primary last year from Nomad Health, focuses a lot on like the infrastructure layer of uh, the healthcare world and a lot on like more of like B2B related healthcare. Um, I spend a lot more of my time on the consumer healthcare side of the world as you know, my background as, as we kind of gone over and really my portfolio is mainly on the consumer healthcare side of things. Um, with that said, you know, we, we've really been leaning into things that are just doing three very, you know, simple things, you know, one is improving access. Um, you know, a big part of my thesis in the world of consumer more broadly is how do you democratize access to whatever it is? And here in the United States, where, you know, such a high percentage of our population, about 20% live in care deserts, you know, democratizing access via telemedicine is really important. Uh, and then number two is really all about improving patient outcomes. You know, how can we figure out ways not to just get something in the consumer's hand, but how can we make them better? I mean, you know, I don't really like using the word consumer anymore when I'm talking about healthcare investments. They're because they're patients, they're people, you know. So figuring out how can we really enhance the patient outcome is, is really, really important. And then the last thing I'll just mention is, you know, we're, we're usually looking for businesses that have really, really sticky, you know, recurring revenue streams. Um, you know, a lot of consumer businesses have gotten in trouble when they're you know, selling one-off things. So we're usually looking for healthcare businesses that are helping patient populations that need a recurring relationship in one way, shape or form. So that could be you know, in the case of Perry Health that we invested in recently, you know, a chronic condition like diabetes that impacts such a massive percentage of the population in the United States and is only going to get worse. Um, but it could also be something like a primary care physician who really serves as like the entry point and then the coordinator um, for the consumer and the patient journey. Nice. And in order for you to invest, what does that company need in terms of the stage of growth they're at, in terms of MVP, evidence of product market fit, revenues? Do you look at anything and everything? Do you, how, how do you make your decisions there? Yeah, I'd, I'd say really anything and everything. I mean, you know, it, it it all depends, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you a quick story because I think you told me that your listeners like stories, Absolutely. Um, you know, so, so Pan, uh, the founder of Perry Health, um, you know, he had launched this company prior and, and they had started out really selling to physicians and it was a B2B company. Um, and they had built some really, really great technology and, you know, really optimized the patient journey. Um, but was, was really having, you know, struggling a bit to get true product market fit and like scale out that, that B2B business. Um, I got reintroduced to Pan and we were having a conversation about the idea of making, you know, Perry into a consumer business. And, you know, he was planning to um, basically go out with a partnership strategy in the early days. Uh, and we had a conversation that, that I'll never forget, which I remember asking him, like, you know, why, why, why do you have a partnership strategy? You know, from my experience, you know, a lot of those, uh, those strategies aren't really predictable and they're a little, and they're pretty time consuming and not, and pretty difficult. And I was like, have you ever considered just running a test, like a Facebook ad test to target this population? And, you know, Pan, um, you know, I got to give him credit. He is like one of the 
smartest, fastest moving, you know, human beings that I've ever met and founders I've ever worked with. Um, I, he's like, you know, I, I hadn't considered that, but I'll tell you what, uh, give me like 72 hours. And I think I talked to him on like a Friday. And when we had that conversation, I said to him, look, if you can acquire customers for under X, mm. under X, like signups for under X, mm. I'll give you a term sheet next week. And he ended up going that weekend. He learned literally <laughs> as much as humanly possible about Facebook advertising and how to target people. He spun up a landing page, talk about AV testing. Yeah. And he ended up acquiring leads for like maybe like five or 10% of, of what I had, you know, set for a target. And, you know, I, he followed up on his end of the bargain and then I had to follow up on mine. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough alongside Sam to be able to work with Penn and, uh, we're very excited for that company to really be going to market in a big way here in the next few months. Yeah, it's, it, it's a good point. It preempts my next question, which is going to be about what you look for in founders. I think that story in itself, you know so much about that founder, that they're hardworking, that they're diligent, that they're coachable, that they listen, that they can act on feedback, that they're willing to you know listen and try new things. Like there's so, there's so much that you know about someone just from that exercise alone it's the same reason i suppose you know you set people a task in an interview situation it's sort of that but you know he had no obligation to go and do that he just ended up going and doing it and smashing it out of the park but what do you guys what do you personally value in a founder whether that's personality traits whether those are skills or knowledge or things in their background and career what do you what do you value personally when you're when you're speaking to and looking at founders Good question. You know, I think if you were to meet a lot of the founders that, that I work with um, and have had the, the opportunity to back, they are cut from a relatively similar cloth. <laughs> um, you know, one, they're extremely resourceful and that trait has shown itself time and time again over the years, ever since they were probably a child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, two, they have a ton of grit. You know, and, and then another big thing for me is really all about like speed and it's really mm -hmm. about speed of learning and speed of iteration. And, you know, you do need to be smart in order to, you know, learn very quickly and then to iterate and execute. But if you're not moving really, really fast and you're not really learning quickly, it's going to be hard for you to have either a product market fit or be what I would call phase two of your journey which is how you need to evolve as a leader and, you know, within your organization, because your job day one and your job on day, you know, 1000 are very different. And so that speed of learning is really important. And that typically has to come with self-awareness. Um, that last thing I'll, I'll highlight is we talk a lot about the ability to sell. You know, there's three things that you need to sell when you're the founder and CEO of a startup. You need to sell stock, you need to sell people, and you need to sell your product. You know, showing us examples of all of those things and, you know, for selling your product, it might be that you have founder market fit and you have great relationships in the industry for selling stock. It's being an incredibly compelling storyteller. And when it comes to selling people, you know, sometimes the proof is in the pudding on the people that they've, you know, brought on their team in the early days. But otherwise, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, is this the type of person that I would want to work with? Right. So we know what founders you're looking for. You know what, roughly what you look for in, in, in companies. What's exciting you at the minute in consumer healthcare? What particularly 
is what what would be an exciting deck for or you know subject lines for, for you to really be like i'm going to really look at that deck what area is it in what are they doing what tech are they using you know is there anything that you're particularly like hmm yeah i'll have a look at that at the moment yeah so we're actually in the process of closing a deal right now that's in stealth mode uh, and they're democratizing access to really evaluations and diagnoses of learning differences. So it's, it's very, very fascinating to think about, but basically 20% of students in the United States have a learning difference, and yet only 4% of those are diagnosed. You know, why is that? Yeah, it goes back to like really two things. One is like the care deserts, you know, 20% of the population in the United States lives in very rural areas and you need, you know, these, these psychologists in order to go ahead and, and make those evaluations and diagnoses. But number two is cost. I mean, I'll give you an idea in New York city, if you want to send your kid to get a dyslexia diagnosis, it's going to cost you $10,000 out of pocket. It's crazy. It's absolutely it's just crazy. no incentive. It, no incentive. And, and, you know, when that's the case, it's, it's really crazy to me. And not only that, but structurally, you know, it's one of those things that is just screwed up in a variety of ways. So the reason why, you know, we like a company like that is a few things. One, we think that by, you know, democratizing access to it, by building an online platform where you can really pair supply with demand, but building tools for the supply where they can you know, do the evaluations in a lot less time because we're going to help free up their time with you know, less paperwork. That's incredibly powerful because now you can drive the cost down. And by driving the cost down, you're now able to serve a population that was never able to be served before. And what does that do? It grows the market. And, and I think that that's incredibly powerful. And you know, uh, whether, you, whether you like it or not, in the United States, uh, children have to get assessed every few years. So there is a bit of a recurring revenue stream there, but the opportunity that we see also for the company is to provide even more resources. So whether it be tutoring or therapy to these kids, you know, they go through a lot and we're, we're just trying to improve the outcomes for them, um, both, you know, in a, uh, what I would say in, a, in an academic setting, but also within a uh, social and, and personal mental health setting as well. Awesome. Before we start to wrap up, mate, I just want to ask you about what you've got left in the fund and how much you've got left. Are you still looking to invest? What stage of the life? Do you do 10 year funds? I mean, where are you in that, in that life, in that life cycle? We're early, man. Yeah, we, we've got, we're, we're maybe you got, like, you got money to, you got money to burn. Oh, a lot nice. of dry, a lot of dry powder. hundred <laughs> percent is a lot, is a lot to deploy, but um, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're definitely uh, probably halfway through a little less than halfway through the fund, um, you know, from a pacing perspective, um, but we're, we're excited. I mean, we're, we're looking for great founders and great markets every single day. And I think what's really crazy about New York right now, you know, everybody's talking in the middle of the pandemic about like, is New York dead? And I'll tell you something, not only is New York not dead, New York is like at the cusp of becoming the greatest city in, in technology within the United States, if not the world, you know, people are leaving San Francisco in droves. What's happening in New York today is that we finally are in a place where incredible operators that have seen incredible scale are leaving the companies and then coming up with great ideas, probably because they have access to podcasts like this and coming to us and pitching them. And it's like, that's why, you know, the velocity of deals is moving faster than ever and more funds are being raised and more companies are being formed. Uh, so I, I'm pretty bullish on what's going to happen moving forward. Awesome. That sounds awesome. So before I let you go, 
You're on the board of the Jeffrey Madell Foundation, which I think I said wrong in your intro, but I'll get it right this time. Jeffrey Madell Foundation. Um, what are you up to there? Yeah, so, you know, the Jeffrey Modell Foundation is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Um, Fred and Vicky, you know, unfortunately lost their son Jeffrey years ago to primary immune deficiency, the condition that I have. Uh, and they've really been a second set of grandparents to me. You know, wow. um, it's been incredible. You know, they, they've helped me do things like study abroad in Australia where it was hard to get my medication. Um, and they've gone out and they've, they've saved multiple lives or not multiple, but tons and tons and tons of lives in a variety of ways. One of which is uh, getting newborn screening done almost in all 50 states now across wow. the United States, um, which, you know, newborn screening for primary immune deficiency is incredibly important. You know, it's one of those things that costs all of our healthcare systems uh, a ton of money when people go undiagnosed, where it's something that if, if provided with the medication needs, um, then people won't be sick like me, you know, and I think that I got very lucky. So we're just going to continue to try to build out Jeffrey Modell centers around the world, uh, continue to push for newborn screening and hopefully continue to find, um, you know, other things that could uh, support the health of, of all of our patients around the world. Awesome. And it must be nice when you're looking at deals and, and things and, and having the background that you've got, I imagine it's, it's motivating to be able to kind of, well, someone said to me once that investors pick the world we live in next. And I think that's really nice when you apply that to healthcare. And it's it's quite a privileged position, I think, to be a VC looking at seed stage deals because you're really seeing fresh ideas before anyone's ever seen them. And you have this opportunity to quite literally choose a world we might live in next. And so I imagine with, with your health condition, with your work with that foundation, all of this stuff kind of pulls together to, to give quite a meaningful um, well, you said it right. Your, your why in life. Yeah. You know, I think what you just said is, is something that has certainly hit me harder in the last year than, mm. than ever before. And, you know, um, getting promoted to partner in, in, I think October of last year, um, it made me kind of you know, take a step back and really think a lot about like, what is the world that we want to live in? And there are plenty of ways that, you know, you can make money and do good at the exact same time. Hmm. And I think when, you know, when it comes to healthcare investing and whether that be the companies that we've invested in today, or, you know, looking forward at something like psychedelic medicine, you know, it's a bit taboo for many, but, you know, to be fair, you know, coming from the, a mother who's a therapist and looking at the fact that, you know, we're 6,000 like behavioral health specialists short right now in the U S but it's going to be up to 250,000 by 2030, like I'm thinking a lot about the mental health, you know, pandemic that's going on and, and solutions there as well. And, you know, by pushing in that direction and, and you know, realizing that, that we do have uh, some power, not, not all the power, but some power to really make an impact in the world. Uh, we only live once. So we might as well try to lean into the things that we care about. Totally agree with you, sir. Totally agree with you. So Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, my friend. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about Primary Venture Partners, how do they go about doing so? You can find me on Twitter, uh, Jason R. Schumann, uh, S-H-U-M-A-N, or uh, you can go to our website. It is www.primary.vc. And uh, feel free to reach out to us on either channel. Awesome. And we will put those links in the description of this episode. So Jason, thank you for coming on, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.